Hello there and welcome to Fill Me Up. I'm Steve Walker and this is the show to help fuel your film discussions. Now the big thing from this week is that Mulan is reportedly coming out on Disney Plus but you have to pay for it. So apparently you have to pay $29 for it which I don't really know what that is in in pounds I guess it's like 20 quidish something like that um which I understand why they're doing it because they kind of want to get it out there but I think that it's worth just waiting because there's a a, a Twitter account that I follow that I think it's fandom um and they did a poll uh, to see how many people actually would pay for it and 92% of people said that they wouldn't want to pay for it which is fair enough I was one of those people because you've got you're paying for Disney Plus already, and I, I know that it's like a new thing, and it's supposed to be in theatres and stuff, but I just, I don't, like, you could say the same thing about Artemis Fowl, obviously Artemis Fowl wasn't very good, Um, if you have not seen it, it's, it don't, it's no good, Um, but, um, it's just, I don't know, it's just one of those things, just wait for it, wait for a bit. Um, or release it in cinemas. At least release it in cinemas first and then bring it out on streaming for a bit less, I think. It's just... I don't know, it's a strange one, but I don't think it's a great idea and I don't think it'll work in the long run. They are talking about, if it does work, that they could potentially bring Black Widow to streaming, but I just... If I'm paying, like, 20 quid or $30 or whatever it is, that that's because you want the cinema experience and you can't get that at home. Like... For me, the place to see films is in the cinema. So even though I'm watching loads of films now um, at home, just kind of, especially during lockdown, it's just, I th- for me, the cinema or the theatre is definitely the place to see a film. And if I can, I want, if there's a possibility that that can happen, I think it should happen because I think that's the home of it. If, and like, yeah, you don't want to watch it on a television, like television for TV shows, so... Um, yeah, that's just my personal opinion on it, but um, well, I guess we'll see how it goes, see whether it it does kind of go, th- they do follow through on the announcement and, and whether people actually do pay for it. I've got, a, from from what I've seen, I've got a strong feeling that people won't pay for it, but um, I guess they just have to wait and see. I mean, I th- they did do like um, stuff like on demand uh, earlier in the year with like trolls and Birds of Prey and uh, Invisible Man and stuff when kind of lockdown started but um, but that was stuff was kind of cheaper and it had been in the cinema already and I think it did alright but I don't think it made a lot of money uh, I don't think it made anywhere near the amount of money that you it would do at the theatre so for me it's just not the way to go I, I would just say hold off on it and, but um, yeah that that's my view on it um, and we'll We'll see how it pans out. To kick things off, we will start with Alpha Set. Um, and we are halfway through the alphabet now. We are at set M. Um, so I, if you saw, if you follow me on Twitter, then you would have seen the three films that I am covering. Um, if not, then... You will. You are in for a surprise. Well, you, you're in for a surprise because you have no idea what the films are. So any film is a surprise at this point. Um, so yeah, so let's just crack straight on. Uh, the first film that I saw this time was Midsummer. I don't know how you pronounce it. Midsummer, Midsummer, Mid Midsummer. Um, but this is a, about a young couple on the verge of splitting up, uh, and they go to Sweden with some friends after a tragedy uh, to experience a festival that happens. Once every 90 years. Uh, it came out last year, 2019. Had a $9 million budget. Uh, and it made $48 million, So a pretty decent bit of business. Um, remember, if you haven't listened before, then um, your budget... The quoted budget is usually production budget. So you need to double that. Um, so it needed to have made 18. And it's obviously made more than that. So that's pretty good. Um it's done all right in the reviews. It's got a 7.1 on IMDb and 83% on Rotten Tomatoes. I myself give it a 5 out of 10. It's not... So it's billed as a horror, but it isn't very horror-y. horror-y. And I thought it was fairly boring, uh, really. Um, a lot of the reviews that I saw for this, because I was really curious after watching this to see what people thought of it. And 
on IMDb, I'm kind of surprised it's got a 7.1 on IMDb because the majority of reviews that I read were kind of quite negative. They were ones and twos. It was one of those things. It's one of those films that's very divisive and it's either a one or a 10, it seems like. Um, but I'm definitely leaning more towards the one camp than the 10 camp. Uh, but I would really, really like to talk to someone who loves this film. It's just... The start is probably the best bit for me. Uh, the the tragedy that you see is really good. It's really well shot. It's really effective uh, and really impactful. And then after that sort of 20, 25 minutes, um, you, and when you get to Sweden, you're kind of just watching the film, just kind of going... You, you, you've got this kind of curiosity and you're just like, what's what's going on here then sort of thing? But it's never kind of fully realised and there's no... At no point is... I think the horror is so sort of like drip-fed that it never kind of manifests properly. Um, like a lot of places have said it's like kind of... Like a lot of the good reviews have said it's kind of disturbing and unnerving and unsettling. But I think... It was and it wasn't. There was a lot of weirdness going on. And it was very much one of those things of like... I definitely would have just left at some point. But it was just a... Like, there was a lot of kind of questionable... Like with most horror-based films, there's a lot of questionable decisions made by lead protagonists. But I think it was just... um, I don't know. It was almost a film where not a lot happened. And then when stuff did happen, it's either kind of off-screen or implied or i don't know and he just sort of i don't know it it just was i think there was different ways that i kind of almost understand what they were kind of do but what they're trying to do but i think it, it kind of it, there wasn't enough stuff happening on the screen to make it kind of interesting in sort of the horror way but then there wasn't enough kind of stuff happening with characters and things to make it more psychological so if you'd had kind of more stuff about the protagonist and more stuff had been happening off screen and as a viewer you're sort of going did this happen what's going on and he's sort of having this sort of almost paranoia thing along with a protagonist um then that kind of would have been a bit more interesting but it it unfortunately it didn't kind of go down that route and yeah i mean one thing that mo- that everyone agrees on is that it looks amazing. The cinematography is fantastic. Um, you can- cannot fault it for not being interesting visually. It's got a lot of interesting camera camera angles and panning shots, and uh, yeah, it's just it's just very well shot and well very well thought out, um, and just makes for some yeah, just some visually interesting kind of work. Um, but yeah, and. The actors, I felt like, did a really good job. I mean, Florence Pugh, uh, the lead actress in this, um, she's great, uh, and she, she, I mean, she didn't get a lot to do. She was, she was a very emotional and fragile character, and she plays that really well. But there was a lot of just sort of crying in this and like wailing a little bit. I think I saw a fact of like, apart from kind of crying and screaming, there isn't. She doesn't have any uh, kind of lines in the last half an hour, which is which is kind of a bit strange, but I guess in one way it's not, because this film is actually two and a half hours, uh, well, nearly two and a half hours, two and uh, 20 minutes, Um, and I think it's too long, basically. I think there is actually a director's cut that's got another uh, half an hour on it, but I don't know what else you're adding to it, because I think there's already too much to it. There's a lot of... like. Kind of going into this, the one of the main reasons that I I picked this uh, to watch was because I'd heard so much about Hereditary, um, which uh, was the first film made by Ari Aster, the director of of Midsummer, and it was I'd not I've not I've still not seen it to this day. Um, I'm not a huge fan of the sort of like supernatural or haunting or whatever, which it seemed to be in hereditary whereas this is kind of a cult thing so there's it's more grounded and realistic sort of thing um so i I was more interested in this but uh, saying that that sort of stuff still doesn't kind of hit kind of i don't know doesn't tickle my fancy as much as sort of a, a regular sort of serial killer sort of thing but saying that 
I, it had a lot of potential. Um, like I said, there was a couple of directions that it could have gone more a more traditional horror route, which originally it was supposed to be. Apparently, they had been pitched to Ari Aster as more of a traditional slasher film, which uh, would have been good. I mean, because it's a horror and because it's about a cult, basically, you know the direction that it's going to take going into the film, and so it's more about. So I guess it is more about the journey, but I think there was. You you're almost waiting for that moment of where weirdness starts to kind of manifest itself in kind of violent ways or or whatever, or like in a sort of horror centric kind of way. But it doesn't happen that much. Like I say, it either happens off screen or it's just a lot of weirdness going on, and you're sort of like, I don't know. And the protagonists, in some ways, they're, they're drawn into it, in other ways, they're not. I think there's some kind of there's a bunch of kind of things of like, here, take, have this drink and you don't really sure what's in it. So you can sort of excuse a bunch of stuff, but I don't know. It's just, um, it's just an, it's just a, a weird one to kind of pick apart. Um, and like I say, I mean, I, I didn't hate it, but it just disappointed me quite a lot. And I was sort of waiting for things to happen and nothing really did in a way. Um, so, I'd love to hear from from someone that that really loves this film, um, and just kind of discuss with them and just find out kind of what it was about the film that makes it that made them love it so much. I think a lot of I I do like a slow burn in sort of a drama or whatever, but I think in some ways it does. But I think sometimes it just doesn't work, and I think you the pacing can kind of let a film down a little bit. Um, or even a TV show, because I've watched a couple of TV shows recently that have kind of taken a, a show. Like if you ever watched Sharp Objects um, with Amy Adams, uh, it's an eight-episode uh, series and based on a book by Gillian Flynn, who um, also wrote the uh, novel that the film... Uh, what's it called? It's one of my favourite... Gone Girl. Uh, the film that Gone Girl was... It's the book that Gone Girl was based on, and... Uh, I think it's the, the, the Gongo was he's one of my favorite films, and I think it was amazingly paced and amazingly shot. But Sharp Objects had the same problem that Midsummer does, where there's not a lot happening in between things, and it's kind of it almost stretches out a plot that you kind of know where it's going, so you're getting a bit kind of antsy because it's it, you you yeah because it's not delivering in a way. So it's just one of those things. I mean. As with all films, it's subjective. You can like it, you can hate it, but and this seems to be one of the more divisive ones. But yeah, um, I mean, give it a watch, and if you do love it, then please let me know why, <laughs> without sounding harsh. Um, but yeah, let's go on to some facts. Um, so the film was mainly set in Sweden, and it was shown in Sweden, obviously, and there was a bunch of kind of Swedish spoken in the film, but it wasn't subtitled, uh, kind of to aid in the feeling of alienation and. When it was shown in Sweden, the people like the audience goers found the film actually quite funny because obviously it must be kind of very different to like Swedish, well, well, just different to Swedish life and stuff. And they just found it really funny rather than kind of unnerving or disturbing, which I think some other reviews that I've seen have said it just there are points where it's funny. Um, and actually, many Swedish critics praised it as a black comedy, which I don't know. It's one of the, yeah, like I say, reviews have said it. I've seen similar reviews, but. And there were all bits to me that I was like, oh, that's a bit strange. But if I was in other company of people kind of taking the mick out of it a bit, I probably would be laughing as well. Um, but someone that does love this film is Ariana Grande. And she actually threw a Midsummer-themed party for her 27th birthday. I didn't know she was that old. Um, and she actually tried to buy the May Queen flower dress that's used in the film. So she loves this film. I would love to talk to her about it. Um... It's probably not what you would think to talk to Ariana Grande about, but that, hey, I I would love to talk to anyone that loves this film just to pick it apart. But yeah, I think overall it's it was a disappointing film for me. Um, I, it's not made me want to go back and watch Hereditary, if I'm honest. Um, I think it might just be the director's style. I think the cinematography is excellent, but I think just the writing as and the kind of pacing is let it down a bit. Um, but yeah, we'll move on to the second film, which is Moon. Um, this is about an astronaut working alone on the moon. 
um, with his computer companion to send energy resources back to Earth. Um, and just before he's due to come back, uh, he has an encounter that questions everything about his time on the moon. Um, it came out in 2009, had a $5 million budget, made $10 million, which so it's not great really, it's, it's made its money back, but it hasn't made any extra money. Um, it's got a 7.9 on IMDb and 90% on Rotten Tomatoes, so people like this film. I give it a 7 out of 10. I thought it was a very solid sci-fi with a great lead performance. It was a film that I've been wanting to see for a while because I know that it's kind of critically acclaimed and um, it's by a guy called Duncan Jones. Uh, it's directed by the guy called Duncan Jones uh, and he did Source Code, which I really liked. Um, and he's done Warcraft, which is pretty good. So, I mean, I, I was kind of intrigued and it, it seemed very interesting. Um, and, I mean, I've, I've given it a 7 out of 10, but I was kind of woman and arm between a 7 and an 8. It is it is a good film. It's definitely worth a watch. Um, I, there is a, a bit of a plot twist about half an hour in. I did kind of spoil it for myself um, beforehand by accident, um, as I am wanting to do. But... Um, like I say, it's half an hour in, so that it's a third of the way into the film, so a lot of the film doesn't matter if you know that already. Um, I'm not going to tell anyone now, don't worry. Um, but what I will say is that Sam Rockwell is, he's basically the only on-camera actor, I, I would say. Yeah, he's the only on-camera actor in this film. It's very much similar to uh, The Martian in a little, a little bit um, in that way. But um, he is great in this. Uh, he's, he plays so many kind of different aspects of kind of being in in this sort of environment on your own with just kind of a, a companion, computer companion um, that's voiced by uh, known sex best Kevin Spacey. Um, I mean, it's, a, it's such a shame that someone of Kevin Spacey's caliber has done some horrible things because he... He is really good and stuff, and like he he has a very good voice for a sort of computer companion and Alexa kind of Hal from uh, Space Odyssey sort of thing. He's very good in it, um, but yeah, it just kind of ruin it, tarnish it a little bit uh, because of his exploits. But uh, we will not try not to dwell on it too much. Like I say, Sam Rockwell is brilliant in this film, um, and you can. Yeah, you, you get to see like the different aspects. You get to see uh, the toll that it's taken on him. You get to see him being excited to come home. You get to see him interacting with kind of messages um, that are being sent back and forth from Earth to to the station that he's at. Um, you get to see him reacting. You get to see him in his daily life, making models and kind of watering plants and like taking care of plants and things. And it's it's just it's it's just a very well kind of done. It's just a well, very well done, written character and very well thought out. Um, yeah, it's it, it's hard to kind of talk about it without ruining, without spoiling the film because of how early the twist is in the film. But I think let's we'll talk about the the kind of the moon stuff. I mean, it looks great. The there's a lot of kind of there's travel in between. There's kind of these big um, kind of combine harvesters looking things that are kind of make getting the resources from the moon that, that are interesting to to watch. They're all made, named Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which doesn't mean anything. Uh, I've, well, I've read it and they've said, like, I just wanted four names, and it rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Um, so, um, but yeah, it's, that's interesting to, to see, and it's interesting kind of the, to see some of the science behind it. Um, they talk about it right at the start. It's a bit of a kind of an explanation of, what's happening and yeah i mean it's it's a fun kind of concept and it's a fun kind of a thing to see um on screen um and it, you get to see kind of the process from start to finish you get to see sort of the daily life of uh sam the character is also called sam uh, as well as the actor and i think it's it starts off as, it builds you into this kind of it sucks you into those that the world really well um establishes that character really well um and it just means that everything that happens after that is uh just kind of adds to it and it it, it make has more of an impact um 
there are um yeah i mean i think the only thing that i i was kind of a bit disappointed about is uh not necessarily the fact that the the twist happened so early because i thought that it it changes the film it changed my expectations for the film because i thought that the film was mainly sort of a mystery and kind of a what's going on thing but because you find out kind of quite early on kind of what's kind of going on then it's more about dealing with the situation which is an interesting film and it's an interesting kind of decision to ha- make and um but i think it's a good one i think that i i mean i was more i think but I'm, i think my problem is that so if we take another film that i mentioned before the martian that is all about solving problems which i love to to watch having a science background i, I enjoy that but i don't think we and i think it would have benefited more this film having that sort of thing in there and having the the kind of the logical problem solving rather than kind of the more dramatic emotional kind of thing that we have in the film. Um, also, I don't know, maybe you do put the twist later and have it a bit more of a, a mysterious thing um, just to kind of build up the suspense. But um, I think either way, it's it's a it's a good film and I really enjoyed it. And I think it's it's a solid sort of sci-fi uh, film, but. I think just for me, it just didn't hit the mark as much as I'd have liked it to, really. Um, but we'll go through some fun facts. So this was actually written for Sam Rockwell. Duncan Jones, the director, wanted to work with him before, but they couldn't agree on a part that he wanted to play. So Jones just decided to write a new film for him, which is interesting. Um, it was also shot during a writer's strike. So because the film came out in 2009, the writer's strike happened in like 2008 or seven or whatever. Um, and so not many films were being made at Shepperton Studios, which is where the film was shot. Um, and so Jones actually managed to get some of the best VFX staff there and, and it works, which means that he's able, able, and because Duncan Jones has a bit of a background in VFX that he's managed to, um, get some pretty good looking stuff on a really, really small budget. Um, it's also uh, Duncan Jones' directorial debut. I said that he'd gone on to do Source Code, um, which I think is a great film, and Warcraft, and uh, he also did Mute as well, which is a semi-sequel to this. Um, he's actually, before that, he was previously best known for being David Bowie's son. Um, he actually has the middle name of Zowie and used to go by Zowie, so I guess technically he was Zowie Bowie, but he's actually Duncan Jones, and uh, he it's really good that he's managed to carve his own uh, identity out uh but yeah i think it's i think overall the the film is good and but i think because i've what I, because i've seen him work better in source code and i thought that that was a tighter film um that uh and maybe because i i'd spoiled it for myself beforehand maybe it that kind of affected my viewing experience of it but it just didn't hit the mark for me uh for one reason or another um, but let's move on to the third and final film of the week. And this is Mr. Peabody and Sherman. And this is a film that I mentioned last week when I was talking about Me and My Shadow. This is the film that actually kind of originally took its place and then moved back. And But this is the film that actually got put into production. And it is about a super intelligent dog and his adopted son who travel through time. But things go wrong when someone else accesses the time machine and starts causing some problems. Uh, it came out in 2014, had a $145 million budget, and it made $277 million, which is no good, because you need to double it, but $145 million is massive. Like, I don't... This isn't a huge franchise. This isn't a a big thing, and I thought... And that when I heard that budget, I was gobsmacked. Like, it's way more expensive than I thought it was. Um... And that's probably what it didn't make because it made about as much money as I expected it to. But I thought it was going to have like a seventy million dollar budget or something. So it's just crazy. Um, it got a six point eight on IMDb, an eighty one percent on Rotten Tomatoes. I give it an eight out of ten. I had a lot of fun with it, uh, and I think it's a lot of fun for kids, young and old. Um, one of the main things, one of the main reasons for that is that they put in a lot of kind of stuff that adults will know, but kids won't know. Um. And some of the main stuff is about kind of history. So obviously they're traveling through time. Uh, and Mr. Peabody 
is a dog and he is teaching Sherman about history and but he's also teaching um well I mean he's teaching everyone like he's teaching kids but he's also teaching adults because I didn't know a lot of this stuff I I dropped history at year nine when I was 14 so I don't know about some of this stuff um but yeah there's some more adult oriented jokes as well um that work really well that that would fly over the heads of kids which I think that's one of the things that makes the difference between a kids film and an animated film. Like if you look at Despicable Me, um, there's a lot of sort of jokes that adults will get that kids won't get and, and everyone can have a good time with it. Whereas Minions is basically a kids film. I watched it at the cinema and I didn't enjoy it as much as Despicable Me because it's just slapstick and just gibberish talking and stuff. And there's not really many clever jokes in it, which, um, but this is, this is very clever. This has got a lot of stuff in it. They go to a lot of different times. There's the Greeks. They go to the Creeks. They go to ancient Egypt. There's the French Revolution and stuff. And it's there's a lot of like jokes that there's a running. There's a a very nice thing that I liked where Mr. Peabody would make a pun or a joke that an adult would get, but a kid wouldn't. And so Sherman laughs at it and he goes, "I don't get it." And that happens a lot. But I think it's very well done and it doesn't it it doesn't overstay its welcome that running joke if i'm uh if i'm honest and i think the character i think the main reason why this film works is the character of mr peabody it's a very hard character to nail because it's a very fine line between having someone that is kind of very um very intelligent um but someone that is kind of a bit pompous and like pretentious it's very hard to not have those things collide and i think that they did it i think they did it well i think he's on the verge it's hard to make someone very intelligent and very likable in a way like because they become a bit too up themselves and there are like he's he's not only super intelligent he's just super capable so he's making cocktails he's firing arrows he's like calculating all sorts of things he's doing trick shots it's it's crazy the stuff that he does he's doing magic whatever this dog is this dog is out of this world but um like i say it's very difficult to make that work but i think they did a really good job i think having him grounded with um his with his adopted son i think that brings out that sort of nurturing side so then he's more warm and kind and likable um and yeah i think it's it's just i think they do a really good job of nailing it they i think they do a really good job at both kind of because with some of these films with these kind of family films it's quite easy to sort of either get a bit too smaltzy or to just gloss over like kind of backstories or whatever but i think they do a really good job of kind of balancing that and having you get to find out about uh, Mr. Peabody and his kind of battles to win in court and kind of getting Sherman as a, and being able to adopt Sherman as a son and all this kind of thing. And it's, it's all really good. And I think it's all really well done. And I think, like I say, I think the, the crux of this film is Mr. Peabody and how the fact that he is likable and charming and you, you're almost like, yeah, that's fine. Like, you can see why he he can do what he can do and what how he kind of persuades people and I think it's I think it's really good I think it works really well. Um, there are some other characters in this. There is the one that messes with the machine. Um, there is uh, and her family and I think there's the yeah I think I think all the the surrounding characters do their job well. I think there's a character that is very unlikable. Uh, kind of a bit of a bully um but uh, kind of you obviously need to go on that sort of arc and kind of redemption or whatever and and at the end of the day this is kind of a family film and a bit of a kids film and it kind of does teach kids a lesson and things like that and so i think it's i think it's good but obviously uh and obviously because it's a family film kind of personalities are exaggerated and kind of turned up to 11 so uh yeah it's just kind of one of those things you got to kind of shrug it off a little bit it's not the best characterization that I, I would have liked to see, but um, yeah, I think it's it's fine. And like, there's a uh, and Sherman uh, he also kind of gets smitten with a girl, and it's I don't know, 
it's, it's young love, I guess. It's just one of those things. Again, it's it's a thing that, that happens in a lot of films. I don't think it was necessary uh, to have it in there. I think it would have been... But I think... I don't know. I think it's only natural. I think boys, when they're young, they, they take a fancy to girls and they get a bit shy about it. I think that's pretty much the crux of it. So, yeah. I, I mean, there's a lot of things about this film that I think were... I mean, there's some stuff in it that I think, obviously, you could have done better but because no film's perfect but i think this is a and like i've only given it an 8 out of 10 no no another 10 but for the most part i think it, it kind of nails the tone that he's going for and it nails it just nails it basically um and i think it's a kind of an underrated film that most more people should see because it kind of went under the radar i had no idea what it was or where it, what it was about but i think it, it's a solid film it's really good um but let's talk about some fun facts uh it's actually based off a segment in the Rocky and Bullwinkle show from the 50s uh, called Peabody's Improbable History. Um, and because of that, there are uh, some paintings of Rocky and Bullwinkle that are seen at various points in the film. And there was actually supposed to be a Rocky and Bullwinkle short beforehand, but that kind of didn't happen. Um, it actually debuted at number two in the box office, but it hit number one in its second weekend. And it made it the only DreamWorks film to do that in 2014 when it came out. Bearing in mind that How to Train Your Dragon 2 and Penguins of Madagascar also came out in 2014 and failed to do that. But you it's it's a very strange thing because it's it's obviously been really successful in 2014. But it was it, it's turned out that it's the lowest grossing DreamWorks film domestically since Chicken Run, which is how those two things don't seem to match up, but it's it is what it is, unfortunately. It's but yeah, I think it's just one of those things, like, people that wanted to see it went to see it early on, and then it kind of dropped off massively, obviously, after it's probably its second or third weekend. Um, uh, because this film has been shown in different uh, countries all across the world, there are different names for the time machine. Um, I, the, the name's not that, in, the names aren't that intriguing, but there was also different titles for the film. And there was a cracker of a title for Japan. And the title is Dog Prodigy Professor Peebo's Time Travel, which makes absolutely no sense to me. Um, And I love that they've called him Professor Peebo and not Mr. Peabody. I I enjoy that. Uh, Anyway, but yeah, I think the film was was great. Go and watch it. It's cracking. Uh, It's a cracking time. You'll enjoy it. It's, It's breezes by. It breezes by and you probably learn some history. I think it does a smashing job. But let us move on to the film that was... A film that wasn't... I do that every single week. A film that wasn't... Uh, and this week, as you will have guessed from the title, uh, we are talking about a confederacy of dunces. Um, so it starts off a bit sad. In 1969, uh, John Kennedy Toole, who was a struggling author, he committed suicide after his novels were rejected by the literary world. Little did he know, though, that one of his works would go on to not only win a posthumous Pulitzer Prize for Toole, that's a fun thing to say, posthumous Pulitzer Prize uh, for Toole, but also sell over 1.5 million copies and be translated into multiple language. Language? Languages. Uh, that book was A Confederacy of Dunces. Uh, it was published 11 years after his death in 1980 by the Louisiana State University Press. Uh, and it was only through his mother's determination and belief in her son that the troubled tragedy uh, that is the development of the film exists. Uh, in 1980, uh, LSU Press sent a copy of the manuscript to their only contact in Hollywood, which is Scott Kramer. And he was their only contact because he decided that he wanted a floral guide to Louisiana for his mom, and he sent the co- he sent the letter to them using a studio letterhead. Um, so they sent him a manuscript. He didn't want to read it, but because he didn't want to feel guilty about not reading it, he decided to actually read it, thinking that it'll prove to be one of those, put it on the past pile, it's no good. But, to his surprise, he liked it, and he liked it a lot. Um, the book tells the story of 1960s New Orleans resident Ignatius J. Riley, um, who is a 30-year-old, 300-pound slob, 
who lives with his alcoholic mother while passing philosophical judgment judgment on everyone and everything. Uh, While interacting with the colourful folk of the French Quarter, he tries his hand working at a pants factory and then as a hot dog vendor, but he falls for the old trick of sampling your own supply. Um, Kramer uh, sent uh, copies of the book out around Hollywood to try and get a film off the ground. And he was actually successful in drumming up some interest. And SNL alumni John Belushi was actually cast to play Riley. But, unfortunately, two days before he was due to put pen to paper, he died of a drug overdose. Um, Adding to that tragedy, five months later, Joe Beth Bolton from the Louisiana State Film Commission, uh, she was murdered by her husband and she was in charge of... Uh, trying to get the film shot in New Orleans. Um, is it New Orleans or New Orleans? New Ol- I'm going to say New Orleans. We say New Orleans. Um, so yeah, so unfortunately, so already we're at, we're at three, three deaths around this film, which is unfortunate. Um, this kind of led to a bit of a rumour of a curse being attached to the film. Um, but another... But nonetheless, uh, Harold Ramis of Ghostbusters fame, he got involved and he was set to work with another, NL, N- I was going to say NFL star. That is not what I meant. I meant SNL star Saturday night. I should say this uh, SNL is Saturday Night Live, just in case. Um, the, uh, the the sketch comedy thing in America, SNL, everyone knows it. Um, yes, yeah, so Harold Ramis was going to work with uh, another SNL star of by the name of Chris Farley. Um, but, um, yeah, but that didn't work out and he was actually going to work with John Candy, um, who coached the Jamaican bobsled team in, in Cool Runnings, which was top notch. And they were both cast in the lead role at different times, but again, the curse of the film struck and both actors died before the film was made. Um, Cold, uh, yeah, Harold Ramis stepped away. Um, after that, but unfortunately the curse didn't stop there. John Waters, creator of the film Hairspray, that actually went on to be Hairspray the Musical, uh, he stepped up and he had plans to cast regular collaborator uh, drag queen Divine. Uh, Divine was actually the influence for Ursula in The Little Mermaid. I don't really know what anything else she's been in. Or he's been in. He, she's been in. Um, but as you can probably guess... Divine also died before the film went into production. So it's got a lot of bad juju around this film. Um, But nonetheless, people decided to actually carry on with trying to make it. Because it depends what you feel about about juju. Um, But let's move on to the best decade to be born in, the 1990s. Uh, Mega producer Scott Rudin, who we actually talked about a few weeks ago. Um, he was the first producer to win an EGOT, an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony. Um, he was the latest to hold the rights to the film uh, in the 90s. And he... Um, yeah, cause, because since being optioned, the actual rights had bounced around. Because I've not really talked about this yet, but the rights have been bounced around from originally a production company owned by chat show host Johnny Carson to an oil tycoon by the name of John Langdon, uh, then to Orion Pictures, and then to 20th Century Fox, and then back to John Langdon, and finally to Paramount and Scott Rudin. Um, so there's a lot of bouncing around in that. Um, Scott Rudin brought in the British comedy legend that is Stephen Fry. Uh, he brought him in to write, and he actually even flew him out to New Orleans for a couple of weeks uh, to help him out. Uh, Stephen Fry said that even though he's British and not from the American setting of the novel, that nobody really is, and everyone's an outsider to the strange world of Ignatius J. Riley, and so um, he didn't feel that he was at a disadvantage being British. Um, he actually wrote a couple of scripts, um, and he added some scenes in uh, that weren't in the book that included the author John Kennedy Tools, so was a bit meta in that way. Um, Rudin, uh, he liked it, but Fry's collaborator, Steven Soderbergh, didn't. Um, so at the same time Fry was brought on board, Steven Soderbergh was also 
brought on board to kind of help out with it. Fry's idea was eventually shelved due to the problems with the script and the rights and actors that had all been going on. Um, but Steven Soderbergh, who you might know for directing the Oceans 11, 12 and 13 and for directing Contagion and Magic Mike, amongst other things. Um, He stayed on to write his own take on the film. Um, And this one is actually the closest to being made, and actually had a live table reading on stage in 2003. Will Ferrell was cast as the lead role. Uh, Will Ferrell, as I'm aware, is still alive at this point. Uh, Along with Paul Rudd, Drew Barrymore, and Jesse Eisenberg in supporting roles, um, David Gordon Green of Pineapple Express and the Halloween reboot fame uh, was due to direct um, but to further claims of a curse Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans in August 2005 and this made filming in New Orleans a difficult situation uh, Miramax who were producing the film already had hesitations about the film and then Katri- Hurricane Katrina didn't help matters um, as Will Ferrell said, it's the movie everyone in Hollywood wants to make but doesn't want to finance. Um, the last real attempt to make it came in 2012 with director James Bobbin. Is it Bobbin or Bobin? It's only one B, so I might say Bobin. And it sounds funny, Bobin. Um, he was one of the creators of Flight of the Concords. Uh, but he also did the Muppets films, the new ones, and Alice Through the Looking Glass. Um Zach Galifianakis was the latest to be cast in the lead role of Ignatius Day Riley. Again, as far as I'm aware, still alive. He might be dead now. This, as of as of this podcast, when I publish it, this means that they are now going to die. The curse is going to continue. Oh no! Be safe, Will Ferrell. Be safe, Zach Galifianakis. Um, but this too was destined to fail and came and went without any real ripples felt in Hollywood. Um, it just seems to be one of those films that's destined to always get close to be made and never actually be ever actually make it to the screen i mean this film was the book came out in it was written in 1968 9 something like that and just for the author committed suicide and then it was published in 1980 but we're now in 2020 uh and i think maybe it's a bit I mean, obviously, it's been over eight years since anyone's kind of really talked about making it. But I think it might even be too late to make it now because, like, a lot of the stuff that are in the book... I mean, I haven't read it, but my guess is that a lot of the stuff that's in the book might not hold up now and with kind of today's sentiments and, and kind of things like that. But I think... but. As has been discussed on another on a couple of websites when I was looking into this, the more it, and as I was thinking, the more interesting story behind in all this is the story behind the story, and it's Scott Kramer's attempts to get it made because he's the one constant throughout all of these things. Despite people dying, despite uh, people coming and going, despite hurricanes and things, this guy was determined to get this film made and he maybe still is as far as i'm aware he's still got he would still have import if this film was made today and he was i think it's just fascinating that he was the first port of call and he was the only port of call for the publishers and for this book in hollywood and this guy's been championing it so much and i think it's it's just fascinating to me that a guy that this author committed suicide because his work wasn't loved, but then his mum championed it in order to get it made. And then this guy, this producer has championed it in order to try and get a film made of it. And I think it's fascinating. Um, I mean, maybe eventually someone in Hollywood will want to also finance it as well as make it. But, and I hope that, I kind of hope for Scott Kramer's sake that it does eventually come out. But we will see. I'm not, necessarily convinced that it would be all that good but um but i haven't read the book it is supposed to be one of the cult classics and kind of greatest 20th century american novels of all time so uh i don't know why i said 20th century it's the greatest 20th century uh, american novels so uh yeah it's one of those things right let's move on to the final section of the show which is quick fic 
Uh, so this is where I take one of 20 characters, I put them in one of 20 f- other franchises, and I try to make a sequel spin-off, uh, sequel spin-off or a reboot of them. We had uh, Hannibal Lecter in Star Wars, we've had uh, Buzz Lightyear in Indiana Jones, we've had uh, John Wick in The Matrix, so let's see what we will get this week. First of all, we need to find out what kind of a film we're making. We are making a prequel, excellent Excellent. We're making a prequel to the MCU. Excellent. Excellent. And we are putting in Kevin McAllister. We are making a prequel. So we had, uh, if you remember a few weeks ago, I did a reboot of Jurassic Park with Kevin McAllister from Home Alone in, uh, in which I decided that... Um, Corporate, there was supposed, there was going to be corporate espionage in order to try and make an, a another Jurassic Park, but um, Kevin McAllister was there to stop said thieves coming in, um, and used various traps, include that may or may not have included dinosaurs. It would have done. Um, so yeah, so let's have another Kevin McAllister film, um, a prequel to the MCU. Hmm. So th- you could go in many, many, many different directions with this, because obviously there's many um, superheroes, as many uh, that you could base it off. You could all you could go back to the source material, you could go and get a random comic book, and that kind of fits the kind of mold of Kevin McAllister. But I think the best thing to do is to take what's already existing in the MCU and work backwards from that. And I think the core thing especially from basically right from the off from the very first film the thing that seems to be established already is shield so i think the basis for this film should involve shield maybe not the formation of shield because that's in the 40s with peggy carter and that's kind of been dealt with especially in the tv series agent carter but i think that you should we should definitely look into shield and um, I don't know, something to do with S.H.I.E.L.D. Basically, um, Kevin McAllister is, obviously, he's good at the traps and things. Um, so this is a prequel, so hopefully it would have some sort of bearing on uh, future events. If Captain Marvel hadn't come out, I could definitely do something to explain how Nick Fury got his eye patch and how he lost his eye, but unfortunately, he apparently got it scratched by a cat. Um, spoiler alert. Well, it's not really a spoiler for Captain Marvel. He got his eyes scratched by a cat. It's just not that interesting. But, um, something that we could do, I'm just stalling for time. I don't know whether you've noticed, but I'm stalling for time. Because trying to fit Kevin McAllister into such a big world and make him such an integral character to something like the MCU, um, is quite hard. And I think if you boil it down to S.H.I.E.L.D., then it makes it a smaller world, but it's still it's still kind of hard to fit him in there. He does his tricks and his traps and things. You could almost make a die-hard thing, um, where I mean, you could almost make it. <clears throat> so I tell you what, uh, wherever there's shield, wherever there's a good organization or a good there's good guys, there's also bad guys and. Within the MCU, it has been established that S.H.I.E.L.D. has been at war with HYDRA for years. So what you could do... I know this is basically copying the same thing that I did in the Jurassic Park film, but you can have some sort of espionage between... uh, with HYDRA coming in and infiltrating the helicarrier um, that we see in the Avengers. I guess that kind of... or some sort of S.H.I.E.L.D. base. And uh, Kevin McAllister is the son of... The janitor, maybe. Let's make it interesting. He's the son of the janitor, or someone like that, um, who has had to be, who has had him dumped on, who has had Kevin McAllister dumped on him, or her, um, for some reason, and they they get they get separated, and Kevin McAllister has to then uh, protect Shield and the work that they do from the intruders, from the Hydra agents, using the a variety of fun and interesting traps and with shield equipment you could do so much stuff that would make it very fun and very interesting so that is the way that 
I mean, the way that you sort of do a Kevin McAllister film is you remake Home Alone, but somewhere else. So you make, uh, with the Jurassic Park thing, we made it, we made it, we made it park alone, Jurassic Park alone. Whereas this time we're going to make it shield base alone. Uh, basically, um, I think that would be pretty good. I think you could introduce, you could have him meet up with Nick Fury, and you could have him be the sarcastic and impetuous child that he is at the end by Nick Fury going, oh, you're pretty good, do you want a job? And then Kevin McAllister going, nah, stuff your job, I'm too good for you, um, which I think would be fun. Um, yeah, I think that would be fun. Um, one thing that they haven't really done, I don't know whether they've done an Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., but there's a thing in the comics called LMDs, Life Model Decoys, which are basically clones, um, which would be a fun thing you could do fun little wrinkle that you could put in to the film um but yeah i think that will be kind of fun um and he gets to bash a bunch of nazis on the head which would also be fun um but yeah i think we will call it a day there if you have any other suggestions of how we can put kevin McAllister into the mcu in a prequel then please let me know um also if you liked midsummer please let me know but if you have any other thoughts or suggestions then please uh get in touch at twitter at all at walker or by email at filmmeuppod at outlook.com um please um if you can't uh give us a rating and review on your platform of choice it really helps a lot and i will see you Next time, for more of this shenanigans, hopefully a bit more organised. But, uh, yeah, thank you very much once again for listening, and I will see you next time. Bye!